0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fair Data Podcast, where we discuss all things fair, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the Fair Data Podcast, and my guest today is Andrew Treloar. Andrew is Director of Platforms and Software at the Australian Research Data Commons. Andrew, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank
1: you, and I'm
0: delighted to be here. Great. Well, let's jump in at the deep end. Uh, You gave a talk a couple of weeks ago at IDCC, which, if you can still remember, was before RDA and International Data Week, and that talk really grabbed my attention. In fact, the talk won the Best Paper Award, so clearly I wasn't the only one who was impressed. The talk was about putting reproducibility into research platforms, which is the area you're concentrating on at the ARDC. Could you give us a high-level summary of some of the key points?
1: um sure and i should put a disclaimer first i've been reliably assured by kevin ashley from the dcc that my my presentation had no impact on the best paper award it was done purely based on the paper itself so what we're looking at in the paper was how do you apply the r that is the reproducibility or the reusability sorry the reusability in fair to platforms um, and the reason I stumbled over reproducibility is that a lot of the IDW talks were focusing on reproducibility. Uh, so what we were trying to do was to say, look, FAIR is, came out of uh, an application in the data world. People have been applying FAIR to other kinds of uh, research objects, um, software in particular, FAIR for research software, but a range of other things. What would it mean to apply FAIR to platforms? And so that's where we started. And we thought, well, we can make platforms findable. We can make platforms accessible. We can think about how we can make platforms interoperable. But what does it mean to make platforms reusable? And I should at this point say for your international audience, then when I talk about platforms, I'm referring to things that in the US might be called science gateways or in the UK might be called uh, VREs um, or possibly virtual laboratories. So there are some slight differences of nuance, but they're essentially the same thing. So the high-level summary of the point we were trying to make in the paper was that, firstly, you have to distinguish between platforms slash VRE slash science gateways in terms of what they do with the data and then the platforms themselves. So if you think about platforms and their role in what we were calling the fair pipeline, that is, you feed data in at one end, into a platform when it comes out the other end, is the platform making the data more fair, less fair, or leaving them out of fairness unchanged? Um, And this is an insight that I got from a paper by Ramazani et al, uh, which I think came out of one of the FAIRs FAIR projects. Uh, But then leaving aside the question of what the platforms do to the data, what about the platforms themselves? And based on work we've been doing in Australia, particularly around uh, a program of investment uh, in research platforms, we've identified four reuse, what we called reuse patterns. Uh, and so those four reuse patterns, which we'll probably get into later on, were um, accessing an existing platform, adopting an existing platform code base, and running it yourself. Um, adapting taking an existing platform code base and adapting it to your own requirements and then lastly abstracting functionality from a range of platforms and providing them in our case as national services uh, and there are pros and cons of each of those and we tried to illustrate those with case studies from what we're doing in Australia.
0: Okay thank you that was uh, having having listened to the complete presentation um that was a very impressive ability to be to concisely summarize it so brilliant thank you um and as you say hopefully we'll get into some of the uh the the related details as as we go forward so so as we said you you work for the australian research data commons and uh uh i never cease to be blown away by the amount of innovation that the ardc is stimulating uh and the research platforms work you describe is a great example of that Whenever I I say this about how impressed I am, how how really almost uh, mind-boggling I find the stuff the ARDC is doing, all the people at the ARDC always say, oh, well, no, no, not really, not really. So I can't tell whether that's out of some innate Australian sense of modesty, which seems a little bit uh, unlikely to me, or, or because they genuinely don't appreciate the full magnitude of the innovation. So I'd like to try to get under the skin of the ARDC a bit since since I have you as a captive audience. Could you give us a historical perspective? I know it's uh, – I believe it's a relatively recent creation, but clearly the innovation that is is going on predated it with, with pre- predecessor organizations. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I was pulling a face as you talked about the, the innate sense of modesty because I, I – Despite what people might think about cultural stereotypes, I think certainly many of the Australians I know are reluctant to uh to blow their own trumpets there is a a saying in Australia about the tall poppy syndrome the tall poppy syndrome is the one that gets its head cut off um, <laughs> so I think there is a a genuine a genuine cultural stereotype around big noting oneself as we would say here uh but I also think that for many of us we've been working in the same space for so long that we are both very aware of things that happen overseas and also acculturated to the way we do things in australia and, and and that's not a great answer to your question so let me try and expand that a little bit the first part being aware of the things that happen overseas as i think i i said at the end of my talk at idcc you know we're a small country uh, not geographically obviously but we're only 25 million people, so smaller than many countries in Europe. And we're very aware of the vast range of things, particularly that happens uh, through the European Union, but also the, the range of really innovative things that the UK was doing when JISC was in its heyday. Um, so we're very aware of that. Uh, and then, of course, the range of things that happen in the United States, although they tend to be less national and more focused on particular laboratories or particular Discipline areas. And so we tend to view what we do in that kind of context. But it's also the case that the AADC has been going for a while now, not as you say, through the AADS itself, which came into existence in 2019, but through its predecessor organisations. And so I used to work for the Australian National Data Service, and some of your listeners will have heard of ANDS. Uh, and that started in 2009, and that in turn built on work that had been done in australia around institutional repositories and in fact i started my life in the e-research world in 2003 um, when i was uh, involved in a, a project called arrow australian research repositories online to the world so australia has been trying to take a deliberately national focus to research infrastructure digital research infrastructure for 20 years now and so many of the things that I guess we now look at and regard as routine have come out of 20 years of engagement at a national level and for many of the people who work for the ardc a decade of of working in this kind of space Uh, and so maybe we should be more aware of um how what we do is viewed overseas i one of the comments at the end of the IDCC talk that I gave was from a woman called Kirsten Elger from Germany who was commenting about how she refers people to a lot of our data guides, the material that we've made available. And my initial response was, oh, that's really nice. I should tell our comms people so they know. But it was that rather than, oh, aren't we wonderful? We're producing these materials that are being used by by people in Germany because we're very aware that the stuff that we're doing is in turn building on work that other people have done.
0: Yeah, that's all really interesting. So the, I'm uh, i am definitely, I know for a fact myself, because I, I attend a lot of these same things that uh, you know, that you do, that the the people from Australia all seem extremely well informed about what's going on elsewhere. So clearly you've, you've got that international referencing going on, which I think is a, is really useful as well. Just, just another thought which occurred to me, uh, which has occurred to me, but I'm interested to get your views is, Sometimes the, the small size can be, can be an advantage as well. I'm remembering yeah. a conversation I, I, uh, or a, a, one of these Zoom things where I was there was a conversation going on about some thing to do with research data management. And there was someone from Germany and someone from, from Holland there. And in many ways, Germany is, has an embarrassing uh, you know, amount of resources to throw at this problem. Yeah. But the person from Germany was saying, oh, God, I, I, I look at Holland with great envy because you're doing things at a national level and and And, you know, we are all regionalized and or we're doing the nfdis or
1: and the person yeah, from yeah.
0: uh from Holland said, "Well, you know that might be partly because we're small, that could be an advantage in some way, so there might be some kind of optimum size in the middle where you're not too small, but you're not too big i don't know
1: yeah the 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 Germany comparison is one that is interest of interest to me because the the federal state split responsibility is absolutely something that resonates with us we have. A Commonwealth, we, have, we are a Commonwealth, but we have quite strong state governance. And so sometimes we run into those sort of state Commonwealth tensions, particularly when they're, they're um, led by parties of different political persuasions. But, uh, but the other reason I, I particularly like that example is we say the same thing about New Zealand. We look at New Zealand and we say, oh, look, they're so small, they're so nimble, you know, they're doing amazing things. Why can't we be more like New Zealand? And New Zealand. I should have actually looked up their population. I don't know. They've got a population maybe of five million. Apologies to any New Zealanders. I got that slightly wrong. So that's less than the state that I live in, um, and yet I look at the things they've been doing, and uh, and we're really impressed with their ability to be nimble. Now, presumably, there's some kind of sweet spot. You know, when you get too small, you can be incredibly nimble, but you don't have the resources to be nimble with. So I'm not quite sure where that is. Iceland, maybe, although Iceland seems to be doing some pretty amazing stuff as well. So I don't know. I'm not quite sure what the smallest, the minimum, the minimum nimbleness unit is in this context.
0: Yeah. No. Anyway, so size is it definitely a factor. And then when you get to something like like the US, then that's that's uh it would be well again given the federal structure. But uh, interesting. Okay. Well, that actually yeah. kind of so you know obviously the various programs the ARDC is running couldn't happen without. First, strong support from the government, and secondly, deep engagement with the universities. Could you say a bit about how those are playing out in the Australian context?
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to. Um, And I can remember conversations with some of my European colleagues in, and I probably should talk about European colleagues at some point, uh, at least the nature of that. Um, But I remember having a conversation with them in the, I don't know, the mid 2010, so 2015, 2016, 2017, in which they were commenting on, you know, how is it you're able to do so much stuff in Australia? And I said, somewhat flippantly, we've been very lucky with our bureaucrats. Um, And it was a slightly glib answer. And yet it was, it was genuinely serious. So from 2009, until about 2017, 2018, we had in the bit of the government department that was responsible for research infrastructure, some really smart people who really got the value of data and who were prepared to back what we were doing, particularly doing in the the Australian National Data Service at the time, um, who could see the transformational value of making data, what we would now describe as FAIR. This was before FAIR uh, came into existence as an idea. But they got it and they were prepared to back it and they were prepared to invest in it uh, and w- Australia I, I look at Australia against the United States um, quite a bit as a point of comparison because I have a number of u s colleagues as well and Australia has the advantage that we do have a tradition of doing things at a national level in the way that in many areas the United States doesn't uh, and so the idea that the the national government in a federal system would invest in big lumps of research infrastructure is not a strange idea, or at least it hasn't been a strange idea in Australia for the last 20 years. Uh, And so, yes, there might be arguments about where the emphasis is being placed and are we investing enough in this area versus that area? Um, Are we spending enough on... HPC to you know keep up with the exascale push overseas. There's those kinds of arguments, but you don't have to make the argument that investing nationally makes sense. So that's been hugely beneficial, and we have a we have now quite a well worked through process for every five years doing a national research infrastructure roadmap. Uh, it, it came out; it's technically the 2021 roadmap, but it was released in early 2022. So we have the next five years essentially mapped out. You know, these are the areas that we need to be putting our investment dollars into. These are the step changes we're seeking to bring about. These are the new discipline areas that we want to you know, really emphasize. Um, and then the government's going to provide a kind of a, a budgetary response to that later this year. So that national planning process is, I think, in quite good shape. But then you you talked about deep engagement with universities, and I actually nuanced that slightly. And uh, and to use a a European phrase, I'd call it deep engagement with research-producing organisations, because they're not just universities. So we have a a large government-funded scientific and industrial research organisation called, with stunning originality, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, CSIRO, which employs 5,000 researchers, uh, we have Australian government-funded R&D uh, organisations in geoscience, um, in meteorology and so on, um, and they produce research and we engage with them as well as with universities. And the reason for the our engagement with the universities is, is to put it bluntly, that's where the researchers are. And if you want to make a difference to the lives of researchers you really should be doing it through the vehicle of the organisation that provides the resources to the researchers. Well, in fact, ideally, you should be doing it through multiple lenses. But one of those lenses is the organisation that employs the researchers and provides the infrastructure that they use.
0: Yeah, so interesting. You mentioned CSIRO because that also is a is a it, to me like a really interesting beast. It, it does. I don't think it really. I haven't come across any equivalents in other, in other countries and, uh,
1: CSIR in South Australia, uh, South Africa is the only one that I can is that right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting too, but, but so, um, and also again, it's national and also, and also the ARDC, as I understand that has, has a lot of joint projects and interaction with CSIRO. So it all, yes. so the, the ecosystem is there, but just thinking about the U S because I think, I think the U S. It, it It's quite different from, if you take Japan, the, Australia, Canada, Japan, Europe, less so the UK, but um, but the US really stands out for the reasons, for lots of reasons, yeah. as, as we were discussing. Well, but there are some interesting things happening in the US. I think the US is beginning to um, come into the picture in a different way. And the two, two which, which are kind of topical to me at the moment are the new NIH. Uh, data sharing policy. So there's an example of the NIH coming out with the policy, which is having huge ramifications in terms of everybody jumping to try to figure out, you know, how can they fulfill that. So that's actually stimulating a lot of activity, which is not—it's yeah. not—it's—it's a, it's a kind of mandate. It's not organized, but it's happening. And the other one is is NASA's TOPS program, uh, which again is an agency which is now this forty forty million dollars transformed to open science in in whatever it is five or ten years to train twenty thousand researchers in open science. I mean so that mm-hmm. that's and also but also kind of setting some standards and, and policies and producing material. So so they've kind of so so I think and that's that's real money too. So I think um, I think the US is beginning to get into the game a little bit more. And both of those are I mean NASA's NASA and the NIH are both national organizations. It's not anything like mm-hmm. the coordinated effort, but it is beginning to to happen there as well but um, and yeah
1: and yeah that's true and there are some really interesting things happening at particular universities so um, there's a, a new faculty of data science at the University of Virginia le- University of Virginia led by Phil Bourne uh, an expat Australian um, which is actually looking to shift the open data policy for the entire university so you get these these real pockets of excellence and the pockets of excellence in the United States are really really excellent I mean they their pockets of excellence do some amazing stuff, um, but as you say, they don't have this coordinated national approach. Although you're right, the NIH is is uh, has got a lot of leverage, but within that particular discipline group.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so another one, another thing, or one aspect of this that that seems to me to distinguish the the RDC from some similar initiatives elsewhere is that you really walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. In other words. The ARDC seems to me to be extraordinarily productive, um, not just in talking about things, but in actually conceiving and carrying through real projects that are relevant and useful. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on why that is? I probably relates to some of the things you were talking about earlier, but
1: Yeah, so some of it is around some of it is around having the resources to do things. So being able to invest in projects enables you to do things that you couldn't if you were just I mean so let me let me posit an alternative universe where the ARDC was 20 people uh, and all we we're able to do was write reports and make recommendations your ability to shift the needle in that kind of environment is significantly reduced whereas as an organization of you know 80 plus people I think now Um, and the ability to invest externally you can do the work to to generate the reports but you can also say well let's put this into practice let's see what actually happens Um, and because we've been around for a while you can you can learn from multiple iterations of a similar kind of idea and let me try and explain what I mean by that so one of the I said that I worked for the Australian National Data Service. One of the other antecedent organisations for ARDC was a thing called NECTA, which at the time I think stood for National E-Collaboration Technologies and Resources. Um, but for the purposes of this podcast can be thought of as an organisation that was building a national research cloud, research compute cloud, um, but also invested fairly heavily in virtual laboratories, uh, which is what we they were called back then. And so they had a program of investment in virtual laboratories that was essentially driven by uh, an open call where they said, tell us what you want and uh, if we like it, we'll invest in it. And so there were a number of virtual laboratories that received multi-year investment through that program. And then when the ARDC came into existence in 2019, We had the ability to look at that program and look at the outputs of that program and say, okay, do we want to continue doing that? Do we want to do something different? Do we want to do something that builds on that? And so the platforms program that I'm responsible for said there are aspects of the virtual laboratories that we like, but there are some things that we would like to tweak, particularly around the amount of wheel reinvention that we saw happening. Uh, and around the sustainability of the platforms, and so the open call that I and my colleagues put together for the the platforms program, which has ended up investing in twenty six different platforms, twenty plus million dollars Australian uh, in total, and close to thirty five million dollars Australian in co investment. That program was designed deliberately to encourage collaboration between the the groups that were putting forward proposals and had a, a selection process, a, a selection criteria weighting process that penalised people who said, everything that ca- has come before is terrible, give me a blank whiteboard and I'll start mm. from scratch and rewarded people who were, to use the terms of my IDCC paper, either adopting or adapting. And the way we described it at the time was we were preferencing adopting over adapting and we were preferencing adapting strongly over building greenfields infrastructure. So we were able to learn from that. Uh, and I think, and, and we are able to focus much more on sustainability of the, those projects when the, the funding finishes. Um, and doing that process, so that if you like was round two or, or cycle through through uh, through the process, And so what we've learned out of that is, well, we ran one of those processes for platforms and we ran a kind of equivalent process for what we called national data assets, which were building significant collections of data. And what we found through running those processes in parallel was lots of people said to us, well, I want to generate the data aggregation and I want to make the data fair, but I also need these tools to do stuff with the data. And yet you, the ARDC, are making us apply through two separate um, processes and we don't know whether we're going to get one or the other. How are we meant to construct a bid? And so what we took out of that was, well, okay, yes, that's a valid criticism. What we should be doing is we should be looking at a more integrated approach, a more integrated thematic approach. And so the process we're going through at the moment is what we're calling thematic research data commons, where we're saying we would like to engage with different discipline communities to build something that is truly integrated, where we talk about storage and compute and tools and bringing data collections together um, and engaging with particular research challenges. So it's, it's very much the successor to the platforms program and very much learns from the things that worked in the platforms program, which in turn learned from what happens in the the virtual laboratories program, but tries to build on that. Um,
0: all of which can is I, a very important thing. Can I just ask a question? So to... you say, th- uh, do, yeah, I sure. just you say thematic. Does that is, that is that implying domain specific, or what? What yes. what, what does thematic yeah. mean? Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry. It's it's internal. Well, it's what it's what we're calling the mere marketing material. So we should probably explain it better. Yes. It means essentially with a domain or discipline focus. So okay. the first is health and medical. And the second is ecological and environmental, um, which are still very, very broad terms. Um, that sounds that sounds and, and-
0: quite quite reminiscent. Sorry to sorry sorry again, but I just it, that sounds interesting. To get your thought. I mean, that sounds quite uh, reminds me of of some of the 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 platforms. In effect, they are platforms that are being built in under under EOSC around particular um, particular domain communities which need particular kinds of support in putting together a. An environment yes. infrastructure tool yeah. set Would you say that? Yeah, you could the- think of it
1: like that, or you could think of it like the discipline focused NFDI uh, okay. consortia, yep. uh yep. or even a little bit like the the ESPRIs, uh in Europe,
0: mm-hmm. which again okay. tend
1: to have a bit of a domain focus.
0: And how would you contrast that with? um So another one we had uh, uh Kazu Yamaji from the NAI Research Data Cloud on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I've I've always been interested in the Gakunin research data platform, uh, which is basically a, a domain agnostic um, infrastructure which which supports uh, with with multiple aspects, which again is a almost a platform of platforms maybe yeah, you know, but it's a very broad environment. but it's it's uh, and then I guess you could well I don't think they've done it maybe as far as I'm aware, but to build on domain specific um, extensions to that platform, but so this is a bit different because they're actual are, are these are these like I'm trying to con- conceptualize Would this be a you know, an ecology VRE, something like that? Is that the notion, or what's it like? Yeah,
1: you could kind of, you could kind of think of it like that. Um, <clears throat> but it's an ecology VRE that has uh, significant investment in the collections that the VRE is processing, uh, and in fact has an explicit program of work around building, those, building and maintaining those collections. Uh, We're still in the process of building these. So the the first one, the health and medical one, we're coming towards the end of the consultation process with the community and about to move into the, okay, what are we actually going to build process. Um, The ecology environment one, uh, we're just at the early stages of consultations. So these are are, are very new, if you like. Uh, And they're potentially going to look different I mean, you call it an ecology VRE, it's, it's yes, it's going to be a bit like a VRE, but it's going to provide lots of different kinds of tools for different kinds of users trying to solve different kinds of problems. It's not going to be, it's not going to have the same kind of, perhaps slightly more narrow focus that some of our existing platforms have got. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and presumably, it's critical that these these platforms that you're building are able to incorporate tools which you don't develop, but which are. External oh, tools as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we want to make it another part of my life. Is uh, a national research software agenda, and part of that is about taking tools that have been developed by small research teams uh, and making them visible. What we call a C program of work. Mm-hmm. Um, then taking those tools and uh, reworking them for a broader audience. What we call a shape program. Uh, And then for those tools that genuinely achieve wide adoption, uh, deploying them via what we call the sustain program, uh, making sure they're going to be around for the long term. Uh, But certainly in terms of the platforms work, yes, we'd be looking to make it as easy as possible for people to take existing tools and deploy them into these environments where that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how makes, of course, so how does, um, I'm just thinking of one I'm familiar with is FAMES. And does that fit in? It sounds... Like some of the characteristics of what you just described, but it's, it's some, yeah. I guess it's not, is it, is that an example or is that uh, a little bit to the side? So,
1: FAMES, FAMES is a bit of an anomaly. And I should declare here that FAMES is one of the platforms projects that we're investing in. Okay. Um, and it's not like,
0: hmm,
1: it's not like a conventional VRE if I can put it like that. Um, So so, FAMES is
0: a field acquisition uh, information management system, which helps uh, field data collection, basically, for the people who probably don't know. So, yeah. Sorry, yes,
1: but field data collection that is not tied to a particular domain and which has connections to the back end. So the the, uh, stereotypical FAMES use case is you go out in the field with a PDA. uh, Sorry, PDA, I'm dating myself horribly. You go out in the field with an iPhone or an Android phone, Um, And the field might be uh, collecting geology samples or the field might be in a trench as an archaeologist or anything in between. Uh, You collect data using an app that is on your phone. And when you get back inside network connectivity, that app synchronises the data back to a server um, at your place of work. Uh, And the reason that the Platforms Programme invested in FAMES and we had we had a, a vigorous internal debate about this um, was because although it's not an analysis tool like a lot of the other platforms that we're investing in, we saw it as the best example of a solution that could be easily generalized to a range of different disciplines. And in fact, the Famous 3.0 proposal, which is the thing we invested in, essentially said, look, we've got this, we've got this idea. It's, it's instantiated using antiquated technology and it's too hard to apply it to a new domain. We would basically like to rip the guts out of it and rework it in a way that makes it much easier to be used across a much broader range of domains. Yeah. And the driver for us in the platforms program was, does the things that we're investing in enable a transformation in the way researchers do their research? And we saw a rearchitected Fames as potentially delivering that transformative potential across a range of domains that we really didn't have good solutions for uh, outside of Fames.
0: Fantastic. Okay, great. Well, that's that's all really interesting. So, so let's shift the focus a bit um, to, and and talk about your particular interests. So. So what's the, what's the backstory to your entry into the, the world of, of what's now known as research data management?
1: Yeah. So I have – okay, I have a weird background. Um, my first degree was Germanic Languages and Linguistics with a large dollop of computer science in it. Uh, I have a Master of Arts in English Literature, <clears throat> a grad dip in computing, and a PhD in scholarly communication. And, the, yeah, it, look, it all made sense at the time. Um, the The short answer to your question is I have essentially been doing information management slash data management since 1983. My first academic job was for a new degree program, uh, which at the time was called a Bachelor of Applied Science in Information Management, which was very new and exciting in the early 80s. Uh, and I worked in that organization until ninety nine moved into uh, university corporate IT so the, the the IT services group at the university across the road uh, and while working there got gradually sucked into institutional repositories and then research data management um, but for me they're all part of the process of taking taking something and managing it and processing it in a way that makes it more useful. So even though if you look at my CV, it looks a little weird, I can see a through line through it. Uh, In 2008, um, I was asked by Monash University, which is where I was working at the time, to oversee the project that brought the Australian National Data Service into existence. And then I spent the next 10 years of my life working on research data management. Uh, but building on the, my existing experience on institutional repositories and related areas. And so I, I, I tend to get bored. Well, I, I tended to get bored easily. I used to shift jobs, at least shift what I was doing every two or three years. Uh, and yet I have not found research data management has bored me yet. So it's, there are so many interesting challenges and Uh, opportunities to really think deeply about things that I imagine I'm still going to be doing this sort of stuff when I retire.
0: Yeah well thank you yeah that's really interesting and I I, I suspect that one of the reasons I feel the same way about research data management And I I think probably one of the reasons is that it's so dynamic it it, uh, it's changing all the time and if anything the pace of of innovation both conceptually and in terms of development of of things like tools and platforms uh, seems to be seems to accelerate continually so it's uh yeah uh never a moment and things, moment that, and things
1: sure. that no and things that used to be you know new and exciting are now mainstream
0: yeah which is
1: great because they needed to become mainstream but now there's all these new interesting challenges that we need to solve so yeah it's yeah uh, for, for for someone with a particular the right kind of mind and i clearly have the right kind of mind for this uh it's a great place to be
0: yeah absolutely so you just mentioned um briefly repositories so th- which is and also you mentioned you've been involved with them for for a long time and i think that's also an area which is has changed and is is also very um dynamic at the moment and one of the things which has uh, i'm not saying i discovered this but it's kind of really come to my attention over the past 12 months or so is this uh you know the respective roles of general repositories versus mm-hmm. domain repositories which involves all sorts of things including um, including professional and 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 institutional tensions and and turf wars as well as yeah. uh, as well as funding streams as well as uh, appropriate use of data to enhance fair principles so it's actually quite an interesting area and it's i think it's uh it's evolving in quite a the discussion is evolving in quite a, a positive direction but but i'd be really interested to get your 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 thoughts on that
1: So, I'm going to have to give you a historical perspective on this. So, if I go back to 2008, uh, when actually 2007. So, 2007, I was part of a group in Australia that wrote a document called Towards an Australian Data Commons, uh, which is what we called it back then. And if you're going to have data, you need to store it somewhere. And so, we were thinking quite hard about what this Position paper would say about the role of repositories. And we were, um, while we were thinking about it, uh, we were looking in particular at the UK. Uh, I and a number of my colleagues at the time had quite close relationships with people inside JISC. Um, I don't, I mean, do they, I I guess the JISC still stands for the Joint Information Systems Committee. It's probably one of those acronyms that nobody spells out anymore. Uh, So we had. A number of, of close relationships and we were looking quite closely at the uk scene and a characteristic of the uk scene at the time still so now that perhaps a bit less so was they had quite strong discipline repositories funded by research councils so individual discipline research councils had invested in data centers uh, effectively running repositories for those disciplines and yet At the time that we were thinking about what we were going to do in Australia, one of those, the Arts and Humanities Data Service, got defunded. Uh, The the organisation that was responsible for investing in it said, we're not going to keep doing this anymore. And there was quite a lot of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so in Australia, we looked at that and we said, hmm, we want these repositories to be sustainable for the long term. Who is the best-placed organisation to stand behind a long-term repository? And the answer that we came up with, rightly or wrongly, was universities. Universities, we figured, were going to be around in 50 years. Some of these uh, research funding councils probably were not going to be. And so the Australian National Data Service deliberately said, OK, we, the ANDS, are not going to hold data ourselves. The data will be held by the institutions that produce it and we will um, provide services on top of it and engage with the universities and do a whole pile of other things. Now, that's got positives and negatives. The positive is that the university that is producing the research should care about the outputs of the research, by and large does. The disadvantage is that each university is therefore doomed to be a generalist repository. Hmm. Each university has to manage a whole range of different kinds of Uh, research outputs because they've got lots of different kinds of researchers uh, that they employ and so you weren't able to get the concentration of expertise that something like the british atmospheric data center might have or um the um social science data archive might have uh, because they're having to deal with everything and so that's not the right answer well it's not it's not the perfect answer. Uh, essentially, we we decided that there was no perfect answer. It was a, a matter of balance. Um, I am still hopeful that Australia might evolve some kind of federated network of domain repositories. Uh, we do have a small number of domain repositories in Australia. We have the Australian uh, Antarctic Data Archive, uh, and we have the Australian Data Archive, which is essentially our equivalent of the UKDA. So dealing with social science data, but we don't have a lot of others. Uh, And so at the moment, uh, we've still got domain data in generalist repositories, usually described using fairly terrible generic metadata. Uh, And I'm not thrilled about that, but I don't see how to get from there to a network of domain repositories easily. Now, I should say that one of the recommendations of the this roadmap, this research infrastructure roadmap that came out early this year, is that Australia should develop a national digital research infrastructure strategy. That's a process that's underway at the moment and is going to complete late this year. And one of the recommendations we'll be putting in, my organization we put putting in, will be around data repositories. I don't know what that recommendation will look like. We've still got to have the discussion internally. Um, but that's one of the things that we will be emphasizing in our submission to the, uh, the NDRI strategy process.
0: Okay, well, that's really interesting. It'll be, so I'll be interested <laughs> to see how that, uh, how that plays out um, uh, for sure. Yeah, and I should,
1: by the way, given 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 the name of this podcast, I should, by the way, say that fair is all through that roadmap document. So there's a there's there's just a general agreement that uh, across the Australian research space that yes, we need to make sure that data is fair, uh, yeah. not open, but fair.
0: Yeah, or well, not I'm necessarily
1: open. I should say.
0: Glad to hear it. I, I think that I mean to me that's one of the drivers also of the. Uh, of the need for both generalist and domain repositories is 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 because it's difficult with just the one um to to really enhance fairness because in, in enhancement for things which go into a domain repository and for things which in a general repository is likely to, going to take different different kinds of metadata uh etc yeah so so they're, yeah, they're very not just different kinds of metadata
1: that Yeah, and the way you, even, I mean, everyone says, look, the F and the A are easy and fair. You know, it's I and R that's difficult. And by and large, that's true. But even the finding, the way you find geospatial data is fundamentally different the way you might find linguistic data, let's say, or performance art encoded in a video. Um, They're just very different beasts. And the sorts of finding systems, discovery algorithms and interfaces that you would generate if you're going to optimize for those kinds of data are going to of necessity have to look very different
0: absolutely yeah good okay so so kind of picking up on some of those themes let's let's wind up by uh by by even abstracting out a bit a bit more and turning to the the big picture i mean in the shifting sands of, of rdm a number of of players and multiple players and forces interact and three key ones are national bodies like the ardc or, or, or pan national the e, and the EOSC on the mm-hmm. one hand universities second and third domain organizations like take for example the american geophysical Union which is one which is particularly active in the in the fair and open science area uh and mm-hmm. of course be, behind behind these are the are the governments and and public and and private funders so it, i'd be really interested to get your your comments on how you see the the interplay between the national bodies the universities or research institutions, as you say, and the major organisations will develop in, say, the next five years or so?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I, I have to say my, my record with the crystal ball is not, not fantastic. But, um, and bef- okay, before I answer your question, let me pick off the question of private funders. One of the things that I envy about the United States is their fantastic tradition of philanthropy. So I'm thinking of here like organisations like the the Sloan Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, um, Charles Zuckerberg Initiative. In the case of uh, some of the more medical areas, um, the Broad. I, I mean, there's some some amazing Gates.
0: Well,
1: yeah, Gates. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Uh, there's some amazing um, private funders of research and research infrastructure in the United States, and we really don't have anything like that in Australia. We do have private funders. And philanthropists but they tend to focus more on uh, buildings and art rather than on research um, so I, I don't have a lot to to contribute on that in terms of the interaction between national organizations that are trying to provide research infrastructure universities where the researchers are based and the domain organizations which are if you like peak bodies representing the the research disciplines the image i have in my head is is three overlapping circles and it might actually be interesting i might actually tomorrow if i get time try and map out what the overlaps between those three circles look like but it's clearly overlapping circles um and with with interesting patterns of interaction and uh feeding of information between them so So let me just tease out two or three examples of that to to give you a sense of of the mush that's in my head at the moment. So for instance, if you think about a researcher, so I've said researchers are based at research producing organisations, that's almost a truism, but most researchers do not think of themselves as belonging to the university. So very few researchers will say, I am a Monash University researcher, to pick the university that host my bits of my organisation. They will say, I'm a chemist or I'm a linguist uh, or I'm a a biologist. The university that they're currently at is what currently provides services to them, but their loyalty, if you like, is to their discipline. And their discipline is almost inevitably an international one. So yes, you've mentioned the American Geophysical Union. You could have mentioned the the European Geophysical Union uh, kind of a sister organization, I have a number of colleagues who are members of both the AGU and the EGU, even though they're not based in either Europe or the United States, because that's the peak body for people doing geophysical stuff. And so the researcher sits at at a university, has a loyalty to a particular research discipline or sees themselves as belonging to that discipline, And that discipline will will almost certainly have some kind of international coordination or international presence, certainly international conferences that they go to. And yet the national bodies are trying to provide services to them, and there aren't a lot of sources of international investment in research infrastructure. Now, if you regard EOSC as being a pan-national thing, I guess you could argue, well, okay, EOSC is providing stuff above the level of an individual country, but it's not providing international infrastructure. And so if you think about international organisations, they're having to rely on nationally funded or national investments in research infrastructure and tie those together. And one of the reasons that Australia has... I think, worked hard, or at least Australian research infrastructure professionals have worked hard at staying connected with what's happening internationally is because we recognise that the infrastructure that we're providing in Australia needs to be as compatible as possible with the infrastructure used by the collaborators of the researchers we're trying to serve in another country. Uh, So, you know, all research is international, most research infrastructure is national and therefore you need international coordination. That's by the way, one of the reasons why, uh, my predecessor organization, the Australian national data service was one of the three founding organizations for the research data Alliance because we saw the value in meeting with people internationally to provide that more joined up coordinated infrastructure.
0: Okay. Well, um, I hope you get a chance to do the three inter- intersecting uh, circles. Yeah, That'll be no, really it's, interesting. It's,
1: it's, it's in it's in the back of my head. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I promise. It'll
0: be fa- fantastic. Well, I mean, uh, g, I there's so many um, things that we've discussed running around in my head. I I don't. Uh, I'm kind of lost for words here. But this is absolutely an outstanding conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It uh, it uh, I had high expectations, and it it exceeded my expectations. So so thank you so much.
1: Well, I think I think the credit should be to the insightful questions rather than to the somewhat stumbling answerer.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by fairdatapodcast.org and produced by Mehroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Fair Data Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, 5 p.m. Central European time. And I'm sorry to say late in Australia, Japan and other parts of Asia. See you next week.